This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is going to be from Acts chapter 9, and we're going to be picking it up in verse 19. This is where we see Paul is going into the synagogue in his beginning, his ministry, proclaiming Jesus as Lord. We're going to read through verse 31, so it is Acts chapter 9. Verses 19 through 31. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called on this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Paul, or Saul, increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They were all afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord and who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went out in and out amongst them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walked in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit. It was multiplied. Good morning, Redemption. How are you? Okay. You're okay. That's what I heard. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done this before. I'm sure you have. You decided uh, you want to take on some type of new uh, exercise regimen. Maybe you want to lose a little weight. Maybe you want to beef up a little bit. Put a, um, you know, just get stronger. Jamie talks about trying out for uh, or getting ready for a race. You know, things like that. And so, uh, the beginning, you get your camera out, stand in front of the mirror, uh, real awkward like, take a picture, so you have that good before picture. If you don't, some of you done this, it's okay, it's a safe place, we won't judge you, but we've all done this, right? And so, uh, you take that picture, and, uh, two or three weeks in, you saw a donut. And you ate the donut. And you're like, I, I'm not gonna do this thing anymore. And it falls apart. You know, it's, it's okay, we've all done it, we, fall off the horse in our exercise routines and life goes on and then maybe a couple months or years later you're scrolling through some old photos on your phone or on your computer and there's that before photo and there you are in all your beforeness uh and it's disappointing isn't it a little bit because you were hoping to see a big change i've had that happen uh i just tried to work out really hard one time i'm a little guy i'll admit it i'm skinny I've always been skinny, and I just said, I don't like being skinny, so I'm going to try to exercise, work hard. So I was doing push-ups, I was doing crunches, I was doing seven-minute abs, I did all the things. 
and uh, I, just, I was like, I'm going to take a picture because I've worked out so much. So I took a picture of myself and I looked at it and I was like, ah, I think there's some abs there. Oh, there's a smudge. So there's nothing. Uh, but we like the dramatic change, don't we? I mean, that's why we all love the Princess Diaries. And when I say we, I mean you. You love the Princess Diaries because the Queen of uh, the Princess of Genovia, right? She was she was just a girl, and she had the hair, and so she's brushing the hair out, and the comb breaks, and she's plucking the eyebrows, and and she's got all oh, the glasses. Such a nerd, the glasses. So he takes the glass off. Oh my goodness, I don't even know who you are anymore. Uh, and, and the lesson you're supposed to take from that is, if you brush your hair and get contacts, you'll be a princess. But we love the dramatic change. We want to see it. That's why y'all love HGTV so much. Or uh, back when I was uh, in high school, it was Extreme Makeover Home Edition. You just couldn't wait to hear Ty say, move that bus! And it was like, oh my goodness, it's the change. Look what they did to my house. And you want to go to bed, but your wife's like, no, I have to see what they did to the vestibule. That thing was ugly. And you just want the change. Radical. Dramatic change. And it lights your jets and you love it. And you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, you can't help but say, man, look at this guy. Radical, extreme change. One way, completely the other. It was radical. Different. Vastly different. And the Bible tells us when you look at the life of Paul and you look at the text of Scripture and we study Scripture, you, you see that those who live for Christ, those who say, I am a follower of Jesus, their life is going to be a radical life, drastically different. And that's the big idea I want us to look at today when we look at our text is, is this, a life for Christ is a radical life. It is. You may ask yourself, well, how? How is, how is the right life? I'm going to give you the answer to the test at the front, so don't leave after I give you this. Uh, you need to stay. But it's this, uh, a radical message produces radical change resulting in radical resistance that requires radical community. And I know that's a lot of radicals, but we're going to look today at, at what that means. What, what's radical about the message? What's radical about this change? What's radical about the resistance and what's radical about community. We'll walk through our text today and see what our author Luke has to say about this. If you remember last week, Jamie told us about the conversion of Paul. Saul was a Pharisee and he hated Christians. And he was on a rampage to destroy Christianity, to get rid of it. And he's heading to Damascus and he's like, I am going to get rid of these people. Throw him all in jail. And he meets Jesus face to face. Blinds him. And he is converted. He spent some time with a guy named Ananias. And we find quickly, as uh, Jay read this morning, it doesn't take long before he's starting to preach Jesus. In fact, it says immediately he starts preaching Jesus. His life is so transformed that he starts preaching Jesus in Damascus and people are blown away. Who is this guy? And within a couple days, murder threats start coming. 
So he has some friends. They help him. He bolts out of that place. Then we find a little bit later, he's in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he's like, all right, I'm going to meet the disciples. I'm going to get the, get these apostles. These are the guys that uh, I was trying to uh, get rid of just a little while ago. In fact, he was there, if you remember, in Jerusalem holding the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. So he goes there, and these disciples, apostles, are a little skeptical. I mean, wouldn't you be? A little bit? This guy was there coordinating the murder of our friend, and now he wants to join us. And good old Barnabas, who you're going to learn about in the weeks and months to come, defends him. And he says, no, this guy, this Paul, really is a follower of Jesus now. And of course, murder threats come again. And his friends help him escape, and he goes off to Caesarea, and then on his way to Tarsus. And that's our story today. But what happened? Why why this change? We're going to look at that today, and we're going to start by looking at the first part of our sentence, which is this, is, is the radical message. See, Paul was changed by a radical message. Something that was so seemingly off the wall that it had to be true and it changed him. And how do we know what the message was? Well, it's what he started preaching. Look at your text. Look at verse 20, Acts 9.20. Read this with me. It says, And immediately he proclaimed who? Jesus in the synagogues. And what did he say about Jesus? Saying, He is the what? Son of God. That's the first part of the message. Think about that. Hold on to that phrase, Son of God. He has another part of his message that we learn he's preaching. Jump down to verse 22. It says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the what? Christ. Christ. So we have these two phrases, Son of God and Christ. Now, if you grew up in the church, you've been around Christianity for more than a hot second, you're going to hear these phrases thrown around. And sometimes we tend to think Son of God, Christ, they're like nicknames. Like if I call Jamie Jam Jam, like that's a nickname. Yeah. Uh, it's not his nickname. He's going to hate me for weeks for that. Uh, maybe years. Uh, Son of God, Christ, these were loaded terms in Judaism. They weren't just phrases that people threw off the cuff. Son of God, we'll start with that one. Now, a lot of times people think Son of God, that's, that's the phrase that proves Christ's deity. He's the Son of God. Actually, biblically, that's not the phrase you want to use. You're going to run into some quick problems if you debate with an atheist saying this proves he's deity. And you go to praises that say, see, Son of God. Because this is why. If you run to the Old Testament... There's a lot of people that are called Son of God. And the people that are called Son of God in the Old Testament, very important. Let me give you a couple examples. Adam. Abraham. King David. In fact, even the nation of Israel is called the Son of God. Because the Son of God is not genealogical. It says nothing to do with your DNA. It's a positional term has everything to do with with the person who is the Son of God, is the heir of God's authority and rule on the earth. Was Adam a son of God? Was Adam given the responsibility and the role of ruling over the earth? Yeah. 
That's why he was made in the image of God. He had the rights and the responsibilities of ruling. And Paul is saying, this Jesus, he's that. It also says that he was the Christ. And we know, y'all know that Christ isn't Jesus' last name, right? Okay, that's not his last name, it's, it's a title. Now the title Christ is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Now the Hebrew word for Messiah, if we translated that into English, it would actually mean anointed one. Do you know in the Old Testament who anointed ones are? Maybe you don't, I'm going to tell you. They're kings. Kings. See, back in 2 Samuel 7, God chose David to be the rightful king of Israel. And in this story, in this promise to David that you were going to be king, he also promised David that he would be the king forever. His throne would reign forever. There would always be someone from the lineage of David on the throne forever and ever and ever. That's exciting news. Because if you remember, King David, he was reigning during the golden age of Israel. Everything was awesome. It was rich and wealthy and peace. But it was only like two generations later that Israel just collapses. It divides and there's two nations. And then they go into captivity and the Assyrians take some and the Babylonians take some. And they're hopeless. And then God sends prophets. And these prophets make these promises. That, guess what, the promise that was made to your King David, it's not over. Those promises are still in place and there will be a king who will come and he will reign forever on the throne. I am faithful to my promise, God says, through these prophets, to his people. And you know what he calls that coming king? The anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Check this out, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 says this, verse 6, For to us a child is born. You know this. Classic Christmas text. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that's the end of your Christmas card, but you should keep reading. On the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of who? David. David. And over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that's who they were waiting for. Everything was a mess. And they wanted a king, an anointed one who was going to come and fix everything. And Paul says that person is Jesus. And that was a radical message back then. Why? Because here's the deal. The Jews, particularly the Pharisees, knew this Messiah was coming. And they thought that the reason the Messiah hadn't showed up was because Israel had drifted The people of God were not following Torah, and there was all sorts of problems, and God would send the Messiah to be king again if everybody would get their act together. If it all fixed, and then he would come, and the king would, and and the king would be here, and things would be perfect again. Uh, 
Do you know who was a Pharisee? Paul. That's what they expected. And then there's this guy named Jesus who comes and he says, hey, guess what? I'm the son of God. I'm the one who has the right authority to, uh, the right um, rule. I have the authority. I have all power because I am the son of God. Oh, and by the way, I'm that king that was promised. And then it gets even worse because not only are those things, but he claims to be God. Okay, so let's, let's put yourself in the position of a Pharisee. Um, there's a king that's coming. This known, uh, known person, backwards dude from Nazareth shows up and he claims to be that guy. You're like, okay, who do you think you are? Um, and then he claims to be God. Do you know what the greatest of all sins is to the Jews? Blasphemy. To claim to be God. So if the problem is that you're a bunch of sinners, then this guy comes and says, oh, I'm God and I'm the Christ. You're like, that's impossible. You're the biggest sinner of them all. You're the reason that he hasn't come. You can't be him. That's why they wanted to kill him. And Paul meets him on the road to Damascus and he realizes, I've messed up. It's him. This Jesus really is God, and he really is the Messiah. This Jesus from Nazareth, crucified by the Romans, the very ones they thought he was going to overthrow, is the Son of God and the Messiah. Tom Schreiner sums it up, uh, the idea of Christ, looking at the book of Revelation and his identity, This way, I love this. It says, Jesus is the only one worthy to open the sealed book in Revelation 5, showing that he is the key and center of redemptive history. Jesus' victory, however, can't be separate from his messianic identity. Better it is rooted in his messianic identity. He conquers as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is the lion who conquers as the slain lamb. Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth and the firstborn from the dead. The commission to rule over the world given to Adam is fulfilled in the reign of Jesus Christ. His authority as the Christ is manifested in the expulsion of Satan from heaven and in the reign of the saints. And as the Christ and the Lord, he shall reign forever and ever. So you see how astounding this is. The king whose subjects rebelled against him in sin, came and died for the very people who hated him and rebelled against him. And he rose again for them in victory and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, ruling and reigning. That's why the message was so radical back then. But the message is radical now, too. It's not just radical then. I know we're not Jews. I know our world isn't looking for a Messiah. Or are they? Because throughout history, there's been some core questions that every human has asked. Every society has tried to answer Those questions include, like, what's the problem with the world? Why are things so bad and broken? Who's going to fix it? 
And, and that person who's going to fix it, what gives that person the authority and the right to fix it? And the message that Paul preached, the message that we preach every week, says the problem is the rebellion and sinfulness of man. We've rejected our king, our ruler. See, every sin that you commit, did you know this? Every sin that you commit is essentially an act of rebellion. You're saying, I'm deciding for myself what's right and wrong, what's good. I'm going to do what I want to do because I'm the authority, not you, God. That's what sin is at its core. It's rebellion. That's what's wrong with the world. Who's going to fix it? We believe that Christ is both Savior and King. Messiah and Son of God is the solution. See, he lived perfect submission. He didn't rebel. He obeyed every command of God that you should have. And he did it in your place. And he died the death you should have died. And he rose again. That's the solution. And his conquering death earned him every right to sit at the right hand of God. And that's why he has the power and authority to fix it. So to summarize the message is this, the message is radical because it calls us all to die to the idol of self. Turn from our sinful rebellion, trust the Messiah's death for our rebellion, and give our full allegiance to him. So what do you do about it? Let me give you two things. First is, is simple and straightforward. You need to believe the message of Christ. See, the gospel message, the good news of our Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ coming, is not just that you get it to not have to go to hell. I mean, who's excited to not have to go to hell? I mean, that's, that's a great perk, right? But that's not it. If that's your only reason for signing up to Christianity is to get a free ticket to heaven, you've signed up for the wrong thing. Because it's bigger than that. Jesus died and rose again, gaining legal, judicial, and personal right to be your king. And this is really hard for us Americans because we love democracy. And we hate kings and one guy being over everything. We like to have our own rights. But when you become a Christian, you gave up your rights to self-autonomy and self-authority. Which leads us to our second point, which is you need to give your allegiance to Christ. There are many things every day vying for your allegiance. Your sports teams, political parties, ad agencies, you name it, you know it, you see it. Every commercial that you see is trying to get your allegiance. But we're called to declare our allegiance to our rightful king. That's why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. He died for your allegiance. So my question for you this morning is your first allegiance to a king and his kingdom or is it to something else? Can I ask you, give you some questions to kind of figure that out? Can I help you out a little bit? I mean, here's some litmus test for you. Ask yourself, who do I think is going to fix all the problems in the world? Who do I trust to fix everything that's broken? Now, we 
want to say Jesus, don't we? We should say Jesus. But in our heart of hearts, we have to admit that we put our hope and trust and faith in a lot of other people to fix what's broken in the world. Second question you ask yourself is, who is the authority in my life? And when I say authority, I mean who in your life determines what's right and wrong? Who in your life determines what's true? Who in your life determines, here's a tough one, what's beautiful? Because there is authority in heaven, his name is God. And he's the one who determines what is right, what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. And if you put your trust in anything else, you, you rely on anything else other than that for your authority, that's where your allegiance is. That's a radical message. A very radical message. Well, a radical message is going to do something. It's going to produce a radical change. It's going to produce a radical change. Do you ever uh, have an experience where you see something that you can't unsee? You, you never see things the same way again. Uh, so I've seen a lot of this in my life since 2020. Uh, I think I know the FedEx truck guy's um, birthday even. Just kidding. I don't get to know him that much. But we've seen a lot of FedEx recently because everybody's buying stuff online more and more. We had to be at home, and so everything's being shipped. Um, can I show you something? Maybe you've never seen this, and if uh, this will change your life. For probably the most the outside of getting saved. So in between this E and the X, KCDEDX, did you know that there's an arrow? You will never look at FedEx the same way again. Everywhere you look. And you will think of me. I did that on purpose. You can't unsee that. It is, you will look at the world differently. You will look at FedEx differently because you know there is an arrow between the ENX and some marketing genius came up with that. Brilliant. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. Except for with Paul, he was, he didn't even see the arrow. His arrow was pointing the other direction. He met Jesus and he was like, holy cow, I have missed it completely. Complete 180. A world of difference. Do you remember who Paul was? Jamie talked about this last week. He was and he was like the most educated Pharisee of all the Pharisees. If there was a Pharisee all-star team, he would be the number one pick. If there was a Pharisee Hall of Fame, he would have been the first guy in. He was it. Tribe of Benjamin. He was the about as Jewish as you could get. And he loved the law. And he was walking on the road to Damascus so passionate about upholding Torah that he was ready to murder Christians, throw them in jail, and he meets Jesus. And a complete change of direction happened. So much so that people didn't believe it. Did you catch that? Acts 9.21. Look at this with me. And all who heard him were amazed. That word amazed can be also translated as dumbfounded, flabbergasted, blown away, or perplexed. They were like, what? It's like if Adam Boylan walked in one Sunday and was like, I think the Colts are the worst team in the history of football. It wouldn't happen. It just wouldn't happen. 
But that's the change. They knew it. Not, it says, they said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, that's putting it lightly, of those who called upon his, this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? They noticed this change and they couldn't believe it. And those were unbelievers. But even believers had a hard time. Look at 926. Look at verse 26. It says, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. His dramatic change was so, so significant that people doubted it. There's no way this could happen. He was so against us. How in the world is he now for us? Why was it so radical back then to see that? Well, because he was one way and is now another. I mean, Paul's motivation, his purpose, his desires, his entire worldview was different. And what brings about that kind of change? Y'all remember point one? What's that? In fact, he writes as much in Romans 1.16 when he writes this, For I, speaking, Paul's writing here, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel message, the message of Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. It is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. So it was radical then. But is a change like that radical now? Absolutely. The cultural air we breathe says that your life is about you. You know the phrases. Be true to yourself. You be you. Live your best life now. It's the air we breathe, it's the clothes we buy, it's the movies we watch, it's the politicians we vote for. It is everywhere. Life is about you. That's what our culture tells us, and we buy into it so easily. The individual self is its own God, no greater authority than the self. That's our culture. Bruce Ashford sums up our cultural moment like this. He says, in our culture, the whole point of a person's existence is to be authentic. That for an individual to be authentic, they must align their lives with their deepest desires. And that for societies to be authentic, they must applaud individuals for aligning life with their deepest desires. And what this message does and the change that happens, it says, I'm no longer living for me. My life is not about my dreams and my passions. And my life is not about living for me to reach my fullest potential. My life is to live for my king. That is a radical change. When you say it's not about me anymore. And you, your existence is not about me anymore. And when you call other people to stop living for themselves and to live for the king, that's radical. So let me just give you one challenge. I want you to observe. When I say observe, I mean this. I mean, look at your life. Are you radically different? Like, is is there a radical change in your life? Now, if you grew up in the church, if you were uh, saved at a very young age, I know this can be tough. 
Like, man, I stole a cookie when I was like four. So I guess I'm different. But, but if you've been a Christian for much of your life, you should still be able to look back 10 years and be like, I am way different than I was 10 years ago. I am changed. You need to observe. But even more so, I mean, is there a change between you and the world around you? Or do you, are your values the same as everybody else's? I don't challenge you to get around people so they can observe you too. Let other people see the change in you. Are other people saying, man, I've noticed you've changed a lot in a good way. Because a radical message will produce radical change. But also do this, it, it's going to result, that radical change is going to result in radical resistance. Because people don't like change. I mean, I know I was talking about like we love the dramatic change, but we're honest, like we like dramatic change, but we also hate change. We really hate change when it exposes our sin. We really hate change when that change exposes our own rebellion and the weakness of our idols. And when that happens, when a light shines in the dark and everybody's like, oh man, wow, I'm really a bad person. I thought I was a good person. You're going to be persecuted. In fact, Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Paul is preaching this radical message in Damascus. Boldly. His life has been changed. People are blown away. And they tolerate it for a little while until he starts winning some arguments. Do you see that? He was, he was winning. He was proving that Jesus was the Christ. And in verse 23, they plan his murder. Then he gets to Jerusalem. Look at verse 29, read it with me. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. And they were seeking to kill him. That's resistance. And it's radical resistance because it's murderous. You ever hated somebody so much that you wanted to see them dead? Just because of what they were saying? It was radical then. But it's radical now. Because if you preach a message like this, you believe a message like this, you allow it to change you, you will be seen as backwards, upside down, a rube, a bigot, hateful. And it's radical and it's confusing because we are preaching the gospel. Gospel literally means good news. You are preaching a message of hope, of love, that you can be reconciled to God. You can have a hope for eternity You can be changed. And people are going to hate you for sharing good news. It's radical resistance. So how do we respond? Let me just give you two two tips. First one is this. You need to anticipate resistance. When the Allied forces in World War II planned on invading the beaches of Normandy, They were under no illusions. They were not thinking that they were just going to walk on shore with surfboards, umbrellas, and picnic baskets and enjoy a lovely day at the beach in France. 
They anticipated and expected that they would be met with every ounce of resistance from the German forces to keep them from taking that very important piece of ground. They knew the Germans were not going to give up an inch. And they planned accordingly. And to this day, we recognize those boys. They were boys as the greatest generation. Because they anticipated resistance and they didn't stand down. They went after it. And so you need to understand that your enemy is going to resist. See, our battle is not just fought. It's not the type of battle that you fight on social media. It's not the type of battle that you fight like a traditional war. In fact, we're on a battle in a battle, and we're on one side of a cosmic battle between God and the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, the principalities and powers. That's the enemy we're, we're facing. And when we as a church decided, we're going to storm the gates of hell, we're going to go after the lost in the city of Fort Wayne, we're not going to let people leave without hearing the good news of Jesus. Do you think the enemy sat by and was like, oh, that's interesting. Hey, let's go play, uh, let's go play some chess. I don't know why I think Satan plays chess, but that's we think that's what he's going to do, right? No way. When you say, I'm going after, I want to save souls. I want to bring the name of Jesus to the city of Fort Wayne so every knee will bow and every tongue confess in Fort Wayne that Jesus is Lord. The enemy is going to say, uh, excuse me, no. And you've got a big target on your back. And you need to know that's going to happen. But we don't back down. Instead, we plan accordingly. You need to know that your enemy is not your neighbors, not your coworkers. Your enemy is Satan and his spiritual forces. And your enemy is your own flesh, your own sin. Because you all know we face it every day. There's, there's parts of us that don't want to obey. There's parts of us that want to submit. More often than we even want to admit to ourselves. Even Paul faced it. Go read Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do. I don't want to do what I do want to do. And we all face that. And I want you to know that's normal. It's part of the Christian life. And you need to understand it's going to happen. But you die daily to yourself. So we have a radical message that produces radical change. Resulting in radical resistance. Last, this requires radical community. I say it requires radical community because if you look at the text, you realize Paul could not accomplish anything that he accomplished in this text alone. Even if you go back to his conversion, who met Paul after he got converted? Ananias, right? So there's somebody there helping him. He gets in Damascus, and who was he with in Damascus? Was he all alone? Verse 19, right? He says he was with his Disciples. Then in verse 25, when there was a plot to murder him, who helped him escape through a hole in a wall? His disciples. Verse 27, or verse 25, right? Verse 27, we find out he's in Jerusalem, and people are not ready to accept him in the disciples, uh, among the disciples, and who helped, stands up and defends him? Barnabas. And you get to verse 30, another plot to kill him, and who comes around and helps him out? His brothers and sisters in Christ. 
They come around and they say, hey, we're going to get you out of here. Notice how many people are involved in Paul's life. He couldn't do any of this alone. And it was radical then. It was radical to come around Christians. Christians were outcasts in that society. If you were a Christian, man, like, good luck getting a job. Good luck being accepted by your community anymore. If you associate with followers of Christ, you brought scorn on yourself. But then imagine coming around Paul. He converts to Christ. You're like, okay, I'm going to come around this guy, Paul. Nobody trusts him even in the Christian community. They think he's a murderer. So if you come around him like, oh, are you with him? Are you a traitor? Maybe you're like part of this plot to get at us. He's coming on from the inside. It was a huge risk to be involved in that kind of community. I mean, it's just as radical now. First of all, because we live in a, we just talked about this, we live in a very individualistic society. To say, I'm not living for me, I'm living for my community. I'm dying to my own rights. I'm dying to self. I'm going to live for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. For the sake of the body of Christ. That is radical. It's all about the self. And it's also radical because we live in a very non-committal culture. I mean, people quit stuff all the time. Nobody commits to anything. Except for maybe your sports team. I mean, look at Paul. He's still supporting the Cleveland Browns. Other than that, we'll quit. But to be committed to a community, to a body. So what do we do? What does radical community look like? It looks like this. First, we, we depend on one another. Look, you have needs. I know you do, because you're a human. You're going through things, and if you're not, you will. Will you depend on this body? And maybe you're nervous. Maybe you're holding back, and I get that. I get there's, there's things that can keep you. Maybe it's You think you can do it on your own. I don't need people. It's fine. I got this. Maybe it's pride. Maybe there's fear there. Fear of being hurt. Maybe there's pain from your past. You've been hurt before. And you're like, I don't know if I can trust people again. Maybe you think you're better than this crazy group of people. Maybe you think this crazy group of people is better than you. Whatever the reason you can think of that's holding you back from being involved and depending on your community, this body of Christ that God has given you, is a lie from Satan. You need us. We need you. God designed it that way. In fact, how you treat the body of Christ is a direct indicator of how you feel about Christ. Why can I say that? Because when Paul was confronted by Christ, as he was persecuting the church, Christ said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute, not the church, me? How you treat the church is how you feel about Christ. Jesus said it. Depend on us. And support one another. Your brothers and sisters in Christ need you. You have gifts, abilities, experiences, a sense of humor, a shoulder to cry on that we all need. See, we're, we're embodied people. Do you know what? Go like this. Hold your hand up. Pinch. That hurt a little bit? 
That's skin. And God gave that to you. You are a person. You need to be around other people bodily. Screens and Zoom and videos, those are helpful. And there's seasons of life where we need that. But we need to be with each other. More than ever. And you all felt it during COVID, didn't you? I just need to be around a person. Because God made it that way. We need each other. So be involved. Join a small group. Serve on a Sunday morning. Come serve next week on service projects. Spend time in each other's homes. Because the, the resistance is here and it's coming. It's always been here and it'll always be coming. And we need each other. So as you look at a radical Christian life, I'm, I'm not calling anyone here to sell everything and go move to Timbuktu and be a missionary. Maybe. Maybe that's what God's called you to do. But most of us are still going to go to work tomorrow. And we're going to be insurance salesmen. We're going to be teachers. We're going to be moms. We're going to be uh, accountants. Whatever it is that you do, you're going to do that tomorrow. But are you going to do it in a radical way? And here's the crazy thing. When you look at a radical Christian life, did you know that when you choose to be an ordinary Christian who's obeying the God, word of God in your ordinary lives to the world around, it will look so radical. If you just practice love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, if you do those things while you're washing dishes or vacuuming a floor or grading papers or selling a widget, you do those things, you will live radically different than those around you. Let me remind you one more time. You don't do any of that alone. We're all in this together. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that Jesus is our king. That he came and died for our rebellion our sinful hearts because he loved us. Because he wanted a relationship with us and, and because of that we have eternity to spend with you. And I pray that today, even now, we would live our lives in full allegiance to you. And when the resistance come, we will stay with you. And that we will do it together, hand in hand shoulder to shoulder as the body of Christ so the city of Fort Wayne will know that Jesus is king. And until then we pray, please come. Please come soon. And it is Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Redemption. You are loved.